Last week I began a three-week mini-series. When I'm finished, we'll be back in the Gospel of John called 2020 Designing Clear Vision for Your Life. And the reason why we're doing this is that I am like super passionate about God's people finding the fullness that he has for them, that they would just flourish in their walk with God. Now, the reason why I'm passionate about this, I have tasted and I have seen for 37 years what God can do to a surrendered life, not only my life, the people I live in community with, the biographies I read, the people I know. I've also seen the tragedy of, of a life not centered around God. And how shipwreck can occur and loss and things just really don't go the way God has designed. In the Bible, Solomon's a great example of this, right? He starts out humble and God says, Solomon, you know, what's the one request that you have? And he says, Lord, I, I don't want riches or length of days. I want wisdom that I might lead Israel. And he leads Israel to the zenith of her power and expands the borders and boundaries of the nation. He was one of their great kings, the wisest man that ever lived. But as time went on, Solomon began to center his life, not around the things of God anymore, but the things of this world. He went after other women, and of course that led to their gods. And, and, and by the end of it all, Solomon said, all is vanity, there's no purpose. He had filled himself with things that brought no meaning to his life. Now, praise God, at the end he comes back and said, here's the sum of the matter. Fear God, serve God, and, and that wisdom's for us. But, but we don't want to go the way of Solomon. We want to be those who finish strong. Um, like so many people we see in Hebrews chapter 11. As we begin a new decade, a new year, and, and one of the things I like to challenge you is go back and look at the past decade. And don't go back and look at achievement, but look at the changes that God has made in your life. Uh, look at the things that he has done. Let it bring out genuine thankfulness, and maybe you can see his hand and all that. My prayer for all of us, and it's not only individuals, we are a collective we are the church. We are God's expression in the Delaware Valley. What does God have for Calvary Chapel? What does God have for you and me as individuals? I've been on this 26-year ride of leading this church. And I feel like Joshua and Caleb, there's still more ground to conquer. There's still more that God has for each and every one of us. The scripture I've been drawing our attention to is Ephesians 5. I'm not breaking it down. I'm not looking at it verse by verse. But I'm drawing your attention to this phrase um, that I've been wrestling with, where it says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise, redeeming the time. As Christians, uh, the Bible's saying that this currency called time, there's a way to spend it. There's a way to get the most of it. There's a way to redeem it. Ephesians 5 gives us a blueprint for the Christian life. It says that you and I should walk in love, we should walk in light, we should walk in wisdom, we should walk circumspectly. Uh, the reason why we can do this, it says that we can be imitators of God. Isn't that an interesting phrase? That you can be an imitator of God. You think, wow, how does that happen? Um, this past week I was walking to the Sixers game. And my relatives have lived in South Philly since 1970. I watched them build the vet, actually. And... Um, they are six blocks from the sports complex. My grandfather and I, this is hard to believe, we would go to entire Philly's homestands. Can you believe that? He got in for 50 cents. He was a senior citizen. I was 14 and under. I got in for 50 cents. We would go to a Phillies game for a dollar. And uh, I think a hot dog was, a dollar 50 was an outrage. It was like on the head of the inquiry. Like, who could charge a dollar 50 for a hot dog? How times have changed. But I was walking this path. I've walked forever. I've ne never paid for parking at a sporting event. 
And I was remembering this time where our family was going to a Phillies game, and I was holding my daughter Leah. She was two. And I'm carrying her to the game, and she's pursing her lips, and she's going like, poo, poo, poo. And I thought, well, there's something in her mouth. There's something wrong. You know, this is a, a little child. And then it, it dawned on me. She was spitting. Because when I walk, I spit. And she was looking at me, and she was trying to imitate me, and she was spitting. Now, I got to chuckle out of this until I, fear came into my heart that my wife would figure this out. Like, we can't have a daughter that spits. This isn't good. <laughs> but children want to imitate, right? Like, I have a grandson now. Anything you say, he'll say it back. The Bible says, you know, we're not keeping these rules and regulations. We can be imitators of God. We call that discipleship, right? And Ephesians 5 says that Jesus was our example. Uh, Wednesday night on the Sermon on the Mount, we're teaching through the Beatitudes, and I was just sharing that Jesus is the ultimate example. You know, blessed are they that mourn. And Jesus cried on this earth, and he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, not because he was dour, but because of the condition of this world. And so we can be imitators of God, and we should be, and we can walk in all these things. But again, to, to not be fools, but be wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. How do we redeem time? Well, we only have a short allotment of time, right? There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. Job said, my days are swifter than a runner. The Bible says we are born of yesterday, that our days are a mere shadow. Moses says you get 70 years, by God's grace, 80 years. The New Testament says our life is a vapor. So the world's method of redeeming time is carpe diem, seize the day, fill the bucket list, go for the gusto, just do it. Uh, cringed when I heard this. Jack Welch was like a leadership management guru. He led GM for years, and I would read Jack's books. And uh, later in life, when he was retired, and he was a multi, multi, multi millionaire, uh, Jack had a stroke, and he recovered from this stroke. And one day he was in an interview on television. Again, just shivers down my spine. The interview asked Jack, he said, Jack, you've recovered from a devastating stroke. Have you learned anything? And I think the interviewer was probing, has there been a religious epiphany in your life? And Jack said, yeah, I learned something, that when I order wine, it's not going to be a $200 bottle of wine. It's going to be an $800 bottle of wine. And I just, again, just cringed at, at how someone can look at life like that. As Christians, we know that God has made everything beautiful in his time. That we're not living in a random series of events, that history is moving somewhere. I mean, even if you're illiterate of the Bible, you know it begins like this, in the beginning. And you know the book of Revelation is the end. We're bracketed in time. Time is moving somewhere. The epics of time are designed by God. He hovers over them. In the book of Galatians, when it talks about Jesus coming, this wasn't a random event. It says, in the fullness of time. That means at the exact right time, God brought forth his son, born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem mankind. Jesus came at the exact right time. There was over 300 prophecies about his coming, all fulfilled by Jesus on this earth. In Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. That in human history, there is a time of the Gentiles where they would have jurisdiction over what we call Israel. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. And of course, that was 1948 years. Daniel in the Old Testament was gifted in 
dreams and understanding of dreams and knowledge. He's a teenage boy in exile in Babylon, later in Persia. And God gives him a vision of four world-dominating empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then it says, in the latter times, the last days, there would be one final empire. By the way, by this weekend's newspaper, uh, those nations are all still raging a little bit, right? Uh, Babylon is Iraq, in the news this weekend. Persia is Iran, in the news this weekend. And Greece and Rome are part of the European community. Very interesting times we're living it in. I'm going to get to all that in a minute. Os Guinness said in his book, Carpe Diem Redeem, there's three ways to biblically redeem time. Okay, the sand is not running out of the hourglass. You don't have to run on 100 vacations, right? There's a way to redeem time. Uh, Number one, we walk with God, right? Martin Luther was asked, if you knew the world would end tomorrow, what would you do? And he said, I'd plant a garden. And what he was trying to say is, I'm already living in the light of a relationship with God. Talked about that last week. Today we're going to talk about reading the signs of the times. And next week we'll be talk about serving God in our generation. Kind of using Oz's list here and then kind of filling in my own content. I only want to say one thing about last week, walking with God. You can listen to the download. I want to summarize my main point. It was this. God's more concerned with our growing than where we're going. And I'll kind of add this to it. He's more concerned in the areas where you and I are growing than all the places we think we need to go. Uh, can I tell you this? Wherever you go, God's going to find you. All right? He'll find your address. Don't worry about that. Uh, I was telling my daughter the other day that um, Hawaii at one time, I don't know if this is true, maybe you can fact check me. Hawaii at one time uh, led the nation per capita in suicide. And one of the theories was is because people thought that if they could get somewhere where the weather was great, uh, they would be happy. And then they would get to Hawaii and find out the weather is great, but they're not happy. So again, God's not concerned with where you're going. He's so concerned with your growing. Because if we're growing, it doesn't matter where we're going. Uh, so many Christians have destination disease. They really do. They set goals, and it's all about achievement and where we're going, the jobs and the money and all those things. And that's why all of last week I said, you know, we need kind of a spiritual retreat. We need to step back. We need the spiritual disciplines. We need to slow down. I'll give you a ton of examples. Because I believe as you walk with God, as you slow down, as you hear from him, vision emerges. God will begin to speak, and you'll begin to walk in those things. So that's one of my prayers, and You know, it's in the ordinary mundane things of life that God speaks. But today we're going to look at the sign of the times. Today we're going to look at the world, listen, that surrounds us. We're now part of a global community. uh, Probably the first generation that's lived this way. Verse 15 says we should walk circumspectly. Uh, That's where we get our word circumference, which means we should really understand the epic of time for which we live. The Bible tells us. This is true. There's an old axiom that you should put the paper in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I tell you how far prophetically we've come? You don't need two hands anymore. Um, The Bible newspaper can be on one hand on a smartphone. And then one day, uh, if we're here, and depending on your eschatology, 
You can actually use that smartphone to look at two witnesses that die in Jerusalem. It says the eyes of the earth will look upon them. So we are moving somewhere, and we're moving pretty quick. Um, this concept of understanding the time we live in is all through Scripture. And the reason it's all through Scripture is that God said, listen, in Isaiah, I am God, there are no others, and I'll prove it to you. And God said, here's how I'll prove it to you. I'll tell you the end from the beginning. In case you haven't realized, man is an incurable predictor, right? So they're going to play NFL football today. The whole industry of football is run on gambling, right? Everybody wants to pick a score. March Madness, right? You fill out the pool. Uh, we have predictions and odds on everything, even who the next pope's going to be. Can you believe that? So, so man wants to know the future. That's why people used to stay up at 11 o'clock and watch the news for the weather. Now you just look at weather all day on your smartphone. We just want to know the future. We're incurable predictors. And yet God says, I know the end from the beginning. Jesus said, because you are my friends, I will tell you the things that shall come to pass. In my Father's house, many abiding places. There's this place called heaven. Uh, Jesus told us about the end of the world. He told us many things, the coming of the Spirit. In the Old Testament book of Esther, it's the only book in the Bible God's not mentioned, but he's so involved. Uh, we see, as we see in our day and all through history, it's one of the proofs for God, anti-Semitism, a plot to exterminate the Jews. And Esther, this, this young girl, rises to be the queen of Persia. And Mordecai, who's her cousin, who's kind of, kind of pushed her along in this journey, finally stands back and he knows God's involved. And he says, Esther, who knows whether you have attained to royalty for such a time as this. Such a time as this. God raises people up and he brings them low for such a time as this. Even ordinary people. Jesus uh, talked to the religious leaders of his day. Kind of scolded them. He said, you're great at weather forecasting. You can look at the sky and you're pretty darn good at telling what the weather's going to be. But you can't discern the signs of the times. He held them accountable for the day they were living in. And as we study John's gospel, one of the uh, kind of motifs of the whole gospel is they misunderstood him. That he had come to his own and his own had rejected him. Jesus said of that generation, you're an evil generation. You look for a sign. No sign will be given as, ex except for the sign of Jonah where he was three days and three nights in the heart of the great sea monster and so will the son of man. Jesus said the people of Nineveh would judge that generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And I've always been jealous of Jonah. His sermon was eight words. He just repeated it over and over again. He didn't have to study. He didn't have to prepare. All he said was, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And it's the greatest revival in history. Jesus said, the queen of Sheba traveled the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And today, people won't even read a book, a pamphlet. There's kind of this cynical indifference when it comes to the things of God. And then one day they're going to say, God, you didn't give us enough information. Jesus on Palm Sunday weeped over Jerusalem. He said, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but now your house will be left to you desolate because you missed your day. And so Jesus said that as followers, we need to understand the signs of the times. The prophets understood the signs of the times. 
if we're going to walk with God, if we're going to serve God's purposes in our generation, we need to know the time that we live in. The time that you and I find ourselves in is called the last days. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. All right, here we go again. Pastor Bob's going to tell us the end of the world's coming. He's going to pin the tail on the Antichrist. He's going to try and put all these things together and say the world is ending. And that's not what I'm going to do. That's sensationalism. That's not biblical exegesis. Uh, many people have done that. It's, it's not a good thing. Listen, you can get real smart this morning. The last day started when Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, ascended into heaven. And the last days will end when he returns to Jerusalem. The whole period, which we now know is 2,000 years, is the last days. Now, what we may talk about this morning is, are we in the last of the last days? The phrase born again, uh, specifically is used seven times in the New Testament. Repentance, 20 times. Baptism, whether the water or the spirit, 70 times. The return of Jesus Christ, 300 times. It's the predominant theme of the New Testament. It's in the Apostles' Creed. Every time we take communion, we remember his death until what? Until he comes. In our contemporary churches today, you can go years without hearing about the return of Christ. I challenged myself uh, one year to read the entire New Testament through uh, pretty quickly. And I was astonished that you almost can't go a chapter in the New Testament with some revelation about the second coming. The early church, what was foremost in their mind was the return of Christ, not a total money makeover, okay? Not the rhythms of renewal. Those things are all wonderful. We just talked about it. The foremost thing on their mind was that Jesus could return at any time. So the last days is quite a swath of time. And the Bible tells us what that time will look like. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says the Spirit expressly says that in the last days, some will depart from, listen, the faith, the faith once and for all delivered to us, and give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines and demons. In other words, there would be apostasy within the church. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Here's what they'll do. They'll forbid men to marry, command to abstain from meats which God created to receive with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. But know this, that in the last days, in this time period, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control. Philly word creeped in here. Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. Lovers of pleasure. More than lovers of God. If I could take everything the Bible says about the last days, I can condense it to this. Expect serious problems. Expect serious problems. The Bible predicts that the destructiveness of human power and ingenuity that we often call progress will be used against God's purposes and has. We, we stand and look now in the rearview mirror of history. Daniel predicted this in the book of Revelation when he outlaid those four world empires. You know what Daniel saw them as in his vision? Beasts. He saw nations as ravenous beasts. Uh, 
what an incredible imagery. And, and, and you have to look at, at what's happened in maybe the last 500 years. We've gone from people that live kind of tribal and regional, um, where many of our songs were religious, or even we had fairy tales and things like Aesop's fables, and slowly that was seeded out to now nations, right? Now, in a global world, we've seeded that to nations, where it's all about nationalism. Daniel saw a beast like a bear, raised up on its side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to go and devour much flesh. Now, when we study Daniel, we try and talk about the identity of these beasts as nations and prospective nations, but let's stay away from that, and let's just look at the idea that at least this bear and the other, the other beasts are all about violence, all about killing, all about war. Will Durant said that the history or the legacy of man on this planet is war. Last century had two world wars and a holocaust. Um, if you look at communism, you could say Stalin killed his millions, Mao his tens of millions. The beasts tell us that evil will never be satisfied. The wings on these beasts tell us that it will be swift. And the horns speak of power and how it corrupts. As you look back through history, it really makes no sense why there is always a nation and someone in power who, who, who thirsts for world domination. And we know it's satanic. We know in the book of Revelation one day it will finally happen. Uh, the woman's tried to ride the beast for, for ages, right? The Ottomans tried it. Hitler had his hand at it. Napoleon. All through history, this has tried to happen. One day it will happen. When Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, he looked at the temple and he said, one day this house will be left to you desolate. Uh, that one day they're going to destroy this temple and not one stone will be left upon another. Now, you've you got to understand this. Uh, if you stand at the Mount of Olives and look at the temple, now when you look at it, you see the Dome of the Rock. The temple would have been three times that size. The pinnacle where, where Satan said to Jesus, you know, go on the pinnacle and thrust yourself down and the angels will care for you, was 30 stories high. This was one of the wonders of the world. And Jesus is saying there's coming a time where this isn't even going to exist. And they said, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And listen, they got it. When will be the end of the age? Very famous. Jesus said, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and disease and earthquakes. And these are just the beginning of sorrows. Now, let's think about this. Jesus talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. That happened. He talked about wars and rumors of wars and all the things I just mentioned. That's all happened. What's left to happen is the rest of what he said, which will lead to a second coming. But I want to read you a parable that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24 at the end of all these sayings he told them a parable now learn this parable from the fig tree if you're looking for a reference it's Matthew 24 32 when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves you know summer is near so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. What's near? His coming. 
Surely I say to you, this generation will no means pass away until all these things take place. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. In other words, you can take these to the bank. The fig tree is Israel. The fig tree put forth her fruit or buds in 1948 when David Ben-Gurion stood up and said, this nation will be called Israel, 1967. They took Jerusalem in fullness for the first time. Israel is God's time clock for the nations, for the countdown. And this is where Bible scholars struggle for years because for 1948 years there was no Israel, so they had to do workarounds. You and I are a generation that now lives in the light of this. We're living in the light of what many call a Mediterranean miracle, how God has brought Jews from all over the world back to Israel. So when we look at this, we say, well, is this the last of the last days? I think it is. Now, it could go on for hundreds of years, but I think the clock has started. Remember Ezekiel in his vision? He sees dry bones in the land of Israel. And he says, and the Lord says, can these bones live? And he says, you know, Lord. And the wind comes through and the bones are put back together. The Jewish people are the only people who ever existed to remain a distinct people despite being dispersed. Listen to this. To 70 different nations over 20 years, over 2,000 years. In 1948, when they were, became a nation again, only 6% of Israel was Jewish. Today it's 40%. Projections are by 2030, 50%. Uh, we'll be there in April. And when we go in April, one of my favorite things is when we drive into Jerusalem. We pull in right around dusk. And I love watching people get off the bus and they take their first look at the city. Simon Montefiore in his biography of Jerusalem said when David conquered the, cit citadel, the citadel of Zion, it was already ancient. You're looking at one of the most ancient cities continuously inhabited in world history. You're looking at a place where Abraham offered Isaac. The place where Jesus died. The place where Jesus returns. The early Zionists, when they began politically to plot to come back to Israel, uh, really were not enamored by Jerusalem. Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism, said, When I remember thee in days to come, O Jerusalem, it will not be with pleasure. He wrote in his diary in 1898, having visited it, that it was uh, the musty deposit of 2,000 years of inhumanity, intolerance, and foulness. He, he called the city full of reeking alleys. When he went to the western wall, he had no emotion, save for disgust at the hideous, miserable, scrambling beggary all around. He said, when you approach one of these beggars, he flees from you as if he's seen a ghost. What Herzl and others were saying is, Israel, specifically Jerusalem, uh, was a place no one would ever argue over, let alone the eyes of the world will be there. How times have changed. When our president says we're going to put an embassy in Jerusalem, front page on the news. And just so you know, every other embassy has always been in Jerusalem. We always drive by them when we go. Uh, the emperor has no clothes, right? They, they've always all been there. Only ours was ever in Tel Aviv. But it's front page news. 
Jeremiah said, Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling. That's laughable. He wrote that over 3,000 years ago. In 1948, Ben-Gurion said the state of Israel will prove itself not by material wealth, not by military might, not by technical achievement, but it's by its moral character and human values. Boy, was he wrong. Not that they don't have moral character and human values, but they made the desert bloom. They lead in technology per capita. They have more firms on the NASDAQ than any other nation. Uh, desalination and the way they use water, they're the envy of the world. Their tech industry and their wealth, their military might is second to none. But one of the trends I want to talk about is what Greg Charleston writes in his book, Can Israel Survive? Just the idea of that book is interesting because he's not talking about as far as a nation from attack from outside. He's talking about from within. There's a splintering. If you follow Israel, there's a splintering within. They're becoming more secular. And, and there's, a, there's a whole fight for, you know, you know, this whole idea of the Palestinians, right, in Gaza, the West Bank, and so forth. And it's interesting how two things happen in Israel that put the eyes there. Number one, there's a mosque where the temple used to be. It's been there since the 6th century, so the Jews can't build a temple. It makes it the most important piece of real estate, the most valuable in the world. Uh, they just value Buckingham Palace at a billion dollars. Can you imagine what the Temple Mount would be valued at? Anyone who touches it, you'd start World War III. And then there is this Palestinian conundrum. We're not going to get into the politics of it. But it's like people like Bernie Sanders, and this isn't political, I'm just saying, this is a sitting U.S. senator, saying we should stop all aid to Israel, we should give it all to Gaza. Uh, before Gaza was fully given over to the Palestinians, uh, Israel had built beautiful uh, vineyards there and uh, hothouses where flowers were sent to Europe. That's all gone today. And all the aid that's sent to them, uh, most of the aid uh, is used for rockets into Israel for military might. Israel keeps all their electric on, all their water flowing. You never hear this in the news. So there's this civil unrest in Israel. There's the pressure from politics. And then, again, I used to save stuff like this. I don't save it anymore. Have you noticed the rise of anti-Semitism? I mean, we're only, what, 60 years removed from a Holocaust that shamed the world? Every major newspaper is writing about it. Four out of ten Jews are, uh, excuse me, Europeans are anti-Jewish. Uh, we've seen all the synagogue bombings here and in Europe. You put together what's going on in Israel and the rise of anti-Semitism around the world and you start to wonder, can Israel survive? Now, Jesus said the generation that would see Israel blossom would see his return. Uh, basically, what he was saying is that the people that would come back in that land would never again not ever be a nation. So you could take this, this to the bank. That lamb will always be there until Jesus comes. And I think what we're seeing is a global trend. You're going to see more Jews migrate there. You're going to see more political pressure. I don't know how long, much longer this can go on. Come on. Uh, we're sitting here and writing your newspapers. We have Iran flaring up. And you kind of say, set your watch on this. Every time I go to Israel, something flares up. The reality is it's always flaring up. One day... 
it will be the final flare-up. And maybe while we're there, it'll be that time. That would be wonderful. But keep your eyes on all these things. Um, the Bible says, the eyes of the world will be drawn there one day. All the armies will be joined there at Armageddon. I want to get into another trend, climate change. How's this for astute planning? Talking about climate change on a day where it's 62 degrees in Philadelphia in January. How cool is that? Master planning on my part. <laughs> climate change used to be called global warming. Uh, it was politicized. Uh, we were never really sure if the science was right. Again, I save articles and newspapers and magazines. I don't even save it anymore. It's everywhere. Even Philadelphia Magazine had a you know, article on climate change. It's everywhere you look. It's the predominant issue of our day. We're still unsure if the science is right. I don't have time to get into that. We know this. The planet is hotter. Uh, the oceans are rising. Polar caps are melting. Our seas are more acidic. Um, you could say that's from two things. One, human green, greed. Or is it a sign? Is it God kind of opening the window a little to what's coming? Uh, there's no doubt that greenhouse gases are a big contributor to this. Uh, staggering where we're going. See, here's what's happening. The world wants to live like we've lived, okay? See, the secret used to be we lived one way and the rest of the world lived the other way. Now they want to live like us. Thomas Friedman went, yeah, this is years ago, this is the 90s, he went to Shanghai and he got there at night and he opened up his curtains, he hadn't been there in five years, and he said, oh my gosh, you built Manhattan. And he went back five years later and he said, my gosh, you built a second Manhattan. Uh, we're projected to sell more cars in the next 20 years than in the history of selling cars. They're telling us now that 15% of the world's population does 90% of its air travel. At any given time, just over the United States, there's 26,000 planes in the air and 2,000 planes crossing into Europe. That's just us. And again, this is all supposed to double in the coming decades. Uh, man has always been a builder. When man built the Tower of Babel, God said nothing that they desire to do will be kept from them. Man was made in the image of God. Man has ingenuity. The question is, is God opening the door? Is, he, is God giving a peek behind the curtain? Jesus said in Luke 21, there would be strange signs in the heavens, the moon, the sun, the stars. That there would be raging seas and tides. Could this be like Noah's ark? You know, the people in Noah's day, they saw an ark for 100 years. Is God kind of giving a precursor of what we see in Revelation, where a third of the earth, a third of the seas, a third of humanity is destroyed? I don't know. It's an interesting trend. It's interesting on two levels because I believe man will always figure it out, right? Uh, way back at the turn of the millennium, we had the millennium bug. Remember all that? Everybody thought it was the end of the world. Like, we don't change this millennium bug in computers. And I was like one of the few people who said, look, there's billions of dollars at stake. Man will figure this out. So, we're not going to destroy the planet. This isn't the way it's going to end. And when we do get to the end, like the plagues on Egypt, this will be by God. This is the wrath of God. Are these love taps? 
Is this a wake-up call? Is it a, is it a chance for people to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and instead of trying to get rid of styrofoam on the planet? Like, is there more purpose in life living for Jesus than eradicating plastic? Is there more to live for? I think God is always benevolent to man. And so we see these trends. You're you're probably saying, Pastor Bob, that's great information, but I'm a dental hygienist. I have to get up at 6 a.m. in the morning and clean teeth. How does this affect my life? It affects you greatly. I've always said the Bible has tasked us to have one eye on earth and one eye on eternity. Because one day we're going to change addresses. We're going to change our destination. And uh, there should be a little homesick in all of us. There should be like a mild level depression in all of us. Because we long for home. We long for the place we were designed to be. We actually long for the end of these former things, this pain and the suffering. Uh, We long to be with the one who created us. And I think this idea that we're living in the epoch of time where Jesus could come at any moment, where things are moving somewhere, that we are a generation that has been blessed to see all these things, makes us live in the light of eternity. It makes us, uh, look, you don't have to go in full-time ministry. You don't have to go home today after lunch and make a sandwich board and run around Springfield Mall. The end is near. But maybe what you could do is step back and say, oh my gosh, What if the breath was taken out of my lungs tomorrow? Have I really served God's purpose in my generation? Or am I just a consumer? Am I just acquiring? Have I ever gotten involved with the things God's involved with? Have I ever been about his business? And again, this can be in your ordinary life. Is God even factored into the equation? Noah and all the great men and women of Hebrews, chapter 11, walked by faith. They realized the times they were living in. We live in great times. We live in times that are amazing. I mean, 37 years ago, there was a show on about nuclear war and what the day after nuclear war would look like. And, you know, I'm I'm in college in a dorm and everybody's watching this. And a guy turns to me and said, this isn't how it's going to end. And he began to tell me stuff that I told you today, and it was ridiculous back then. Actually, everything he told me has all come to pass. And Jesus said it was like birth pains. It's going to get quicker and quicker and quicker. I was at a conference last year where they were talking about cyborgs now. They're talking about the, the uh, kind of the alignment of the human and the technological. Talking about sex robots. This is no joke. sex robots. This is ABC News. This isn't some fringe Christian thing. Uh, These things are already in production. They had a guy walking through a warehouse. We live in Genesis 6, the multiplication of people as men began to multiply on the earth. We're seeing that in our day. The world's hot, flat, and crowded, as Friedman wrote. Every thought and intent of man's heart is only evil continually. See, we're riding a rail. Jesus said, the days will get evil. 
But at the same time, we like the days of Noah where we got so prosperous we wouldn't even need God. That we would eat, drink, and be merry. And all the while, the church is God's plan. How will we serve God in our generation? That's next week. Same bat channel, same bat time. Make sure you come back.